You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Cole. And I'm Stephen. And, um, well, a brief note for the listeners who might have been expecting Matt and Simon and Lee and all the others. Uh, Well, (laughs) Simon and Lee are both away and Matt's gone down with an illness. So I've hurriedly convened something that I was planning to do at the end of Series 10 for this week instead. And (laughs) and that is... (laughs) There's a brand new podcast for people to listen to. So I thought get a couple of the guys on from that podcast so they can introduce the listener to their podcast themselves. Cole, Stephen, tell us about your podcast. Oh, Steve, um, maybe I'll uh, let you take this one. Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, we're a, a classic Doctor Who intro cast, if you like. Um, our, our idea is that... We've got all these friends and they're all uh, great new Doctor Who fans, but uh, they don't seem to know too much about the classic Doctor Who uh, shows and stories. And um, we just thought it might be a nice idea to, to guide uh, that, those kind of uh, new Doctor Who fans into classic Who without feeling overwhelmed or, or lost in any way. Yeah, we, uh, we provide a, a guiding hand, if you will. Uh, and uh, as we go along, we hope to sort of drop the training wheels and, uh, and just uh, choose stories at random, really. <laughs> so you're just a couple of weeks in, really, aren't you? Although you started We're only two recording, weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. This is the third time we've sat down to record. And we're on the Blue, Bod, uh, Blue Box podcast. We actually <laughs> can't quite believe it. Um, and can we also say thank you so much for having us? Oh, hell. Yeah, it's really good of you. You're doing me a huge favour. So it's <laughs> me should be thanking you guys. So well, what... What was it that made you sit down and think we ought to do a podcast? Well, you know, back in 2011, we all met, uh, discovered that we liked Doctor Who (laughs) and just sort of ended up started, we started watching it together, really. Pretty much on a weekly basis to start with. Yeah. And we just sort of choose stories at random. It were always the classics too, uh, probably because we grew up with the classics. Yeah. Um, And I don't know, as time went along, it must have been, I don't know, maybe around 2014 or so, the idea sort of crept in that we could do something more with it. Um, We enjoyed very much just discussing amongst ourselves uh, what we were watching and, um, you know, we, 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 I don't know, I guess we just really gelled. Yeah, I think it was a comment that was made by one of my old housemates. So he just said, you guys need to record this because I'd listen to it all day. And I just thought, hang on a second. So uh, it kind of sprung from there. Yeah. That's the best way to get a podcast started. A bunch yeah. of friends, a bunch of friends who actually know each other. I, I you yeah. know, I think this is, you know, the way I like to do it. A bunch of people who know each other. So you already have that shorthand. So when you sit down and press mm. record, you know, the relationship between the people doing the podcast is already there. Yeah, well, that's what we ideally what we wanted to we were hoping for. We were definitely hoping that that dynamic would show through uh, on the actual episodes. And I mean, the feedback we've had just over the last two weeks has been 
very promising, I think. Um, we're, we're all very flattered and yeah. really can't quite believe uh, some of the compliments that well, we've yeah, had. Well, yeah, because it's, it's just three of us sitting around talking about Doctor Who as we would <laughs> any other night that we're watching it. So, uh, yeah, it seems to be striking chord and that's great. So the first episode you did was a short half-hour episode to introduce yourselves. Yeah. And yeah, the, that was the... the I get, I, sorry. No, it's all right. Go on. I was just going to say, I suppose that was the quintessential intro cast. That was the episode zero. We uh, introduced ourselves, tried to briefly talk about how we all met each other. Um, maybe it didn't end up being so brief. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and just sort of, sort of thought, well, we're, we're looking at jumping in points for Classic Who. What's one that we could maybe try and add in on that short sort of half hour episode? And we, we hit on an earthly child, of course, but episode one in itself sort of acted very much as an intro or an entry point all on its own. So we thought, why don't we just review just episode one? So we sort of, the first half of it was just introducing ourselves and the second half we... Unearthly child, yeah. Yeah, we tried to give it a little bash. Well, that worked perfectly because there oh, you are. Oh, great, thank you. <laughs> you got something <laughs> nice and brief, <laughs> yeah, something nice and brief so that actually your introductory episode works as a sort of smaller example of what you're going to be doing. Yeah, mm. that's what we were aiming for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the week after that, your very first sort of proper episode. So of yeah. all the 170-ish <laughs> or something Doctor <laughs> Who stories you could have chosen from, why did you choose yeah. the Sensorites for your second episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said for the Sensorites. Uh, the names. <laughs> It was actually Terror of the Zygons. It was Terror of the Zygons, yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? I think uh, one of our many earlier viewings that we did together um, as a group was Terror of the Zygons, and it was one of those ones where we all just absolutely enjoyed every second. Yeah, to the point where, I mean, obviously we'd seen it as kids on ABC here in Australia, and, and Tom and, and, and um, uh, Liz Sladen, you know, with... Um, <laughs> with Harry Sullivan, um, you know, wonderful sort of cast. But we just walked away thinking, oh, my God, that's better than we remember it. Yeah. And it was one of those high watermarks that sort of stayed with us for, for a long time. Mm. Definitely down to the production team and everything else. Um, oh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes, I've got to say that they're probably my favourite. Yeah. Uh, it just worked, didn't it? It was, it's, um, it's just a great – It's just that's, I guess, what we're trying to do, looking for those classic examples – of uh, of classic Doctor Who, yeah, and from each of the eras as well. Yeah, that's right. So I guess that's kind of why we, we we're in no particular order. We're just looking for those those classic entry points that anyone could sort of pick up with and uh, and 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 go from there. And one of the really nice things about it, the way it works, okay, it's sort of an intro cast for people who don't know classic Doctor Who. So you're yeah. sort of choosing stories that they might go and watch that won't be too wildly different maybe from their experience of modern Doctor Who. I mean, Terror of the yeah. Exam- Terror of the Zygons, last time I watched it, I was thinking this dialogue is singing the same way sort of mm. Stephen Moffat dialogue would sing almost. I, I would agree. I would agree. And we do try and, um, we do try and draw those parallels too uh, to, to the newer episodes as well, when it, wherever we, we can. Mm. Yeah, obviously with Zygons, there's a great connect with Jay of the Doctor, but also the incredible uh, mm. two-parter from Season 9. Yes. Yeah, season yeah. Nine. But the other thing about your podcast is, of course, 
anybody who likes classic Doctor Who gets to sit and listen to you two, you, to you three, rather. You two and yeah. um, Dave. It's Dave the other one, isn't it? Uh, Dan, yeah. Dan. Dan, sorry, sorry. That's no, terrible. that's okay. Um, it's probably... Gets to sit and listen to the three of you. Somebody who likes classic Doctor Who already gets to listen to the three of you talking about a story they probably like. So it and works that, for guess... everybody. It does. And it, I guess in a way it is a little bit of an excuse for us to just talk about Doctor Who as well in general. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, so perfect. And of course, oh, there's a bit of a segue you. there into our topic for the evening, which is uh, yeah. Harry Sullivan. But I'll come back to that in a minute. Ooh. Before Ooh. before we uh, get into uh, Knock Knock, better just say what your podcast is called and where people can find it oh yeah we might want to mention what it's called steve um <laughs> yeah new to who it's called new to who uh, and you can find us at uh, new to who podcast on twitter and facebook uh, you uh, can we've got a website as well yeah we've got a website and we're on itunes new brilliant to so that's so that's perfect people hopefully now go out and find you um yeah any teasers as to what might be coming up Oh, well, oh, well maybe, maybe no just secret. the next one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go on. it's it's no secret. We we did mention at the end of uh, the last episode the one the next one coming out on the twenty first of May, Sunday the twenty first is going to be Terror of the Autons. Oh, so it's two two Terror ofs in a row, which was not uh, planned. But there you go. <laughs> well, it's two of my favourite stories, so I can't really oh. argue. Yeah, I I, I think it's you know. One, two of those stories uh, that probably in everyone's top 10 or 20, I, I think so, yeah. Right, shall we have a chat about Knock Knock? Go on. I think so, yeah. yeah. But did you not know then that one of the characters in that is the grandson of Harry Sullivan? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we do well, now. This is crazy because like, um, I was just saying a call maybe an hour ago. Yeah. I, I really like that Harry got to be the sidekick for the Doctor, and obviously we would just come off the back of Terror of the Zygons, and I was thinking, oh, that's a nice yeah, so you... between Harry. So, <laughs> so how's this work? Well, walk us a... through this. Please don't tell us the actor well, that played the character Harry in Knock Knock is actually the grandson of Harry. <laughs> no. Of Ian Martin. Of Ian Martin, yeah. <laughs> no, there's a line of cut dialogue in which the guy oh. that the Doctor was with Harry was going to reveal that his grandfather used to work for UNIT and his name was no. Sullivan. Oh my goodness. Oh, why did they cut that? That would have been lovely. Yeah, I guess for time and for pace and they've yeah. sort of, it's in Doctor Who magazine in one of the interviews, one of the previews and they've oh, said, man. well the reason we cut it, they said, is because we didn't think people would remember Harry Sullivan, which of course oh. is a bit silly, especially oh considering God. yeah, Especially Thank considering the name who check. is there to uh, <laughs> yeah. to alleviate. Can forget Harry Sullivan. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was only mentioned two years ago in the Zygon two-parter anyway, mm. wasn't he? Yeah, that's, that's true. Right. That's right. But yeah, I think the reason is probably timing and pace. I suspect yeah. stopping to have a chat about Harry Sullivan might have... Because um, one thing about the episode was it kept moving. It didn't stop moving, mm. did it? Yeah, I agree. It's very pacey, this one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So did um, you, so Stephen first then, did you enjoy it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, where do I begin with this? It's got shades of my favourite Hinchcliffe and Holmes, um, you know, the gothic horror in there with the, with the um, you know, haunted house. Um, and yeah, just the sort of creepy crawlies and, and the claustrophobia of, of the, um, the sort of conceptual horror as well as the body horror. It's just, yeah just sings of of that sort of golden era of doctor who to me and i loved it 
Oh, good. I would... Sorry? Go on, yeah, go on. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, no, I was actually pretty much going to mirror exactly Stephen's sentiments. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, what's to be said? I mean, one thing I'm really enjoying about Series 10 at the moment is just the uh, the Bill and... Uh, Bill and Doctor dynamic that's been going on. I think in this episode we got to see a, a different side to that as well. Uh, I was sort of saying to Stephen earlier, um, you know, I think Bill's sort of finding out now maybe that uh, leading a normal life and also having the Doctor as part of that is not so cut and paste. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, mm. you know, it, it, it's almost like he was um, he was sort of in the way all of a sudden. Yeah, uh, but you know, I guess she's going to learn that as Clara did as well. Yeah, that um, you know, he does sort of just pop up at inopportune moments. Well, this was for me. This was the equivalent of say something like Aliens of London. The first time you come back mm. with the Doctor from your travels, and you have to sort of make a new deal between your life with the doctor and your personal life so instead of yeah. rose coming back to her family instead we get an episode where we see some of bill's life as a student and get to meet her mm. student friends and it did remind me a lot as you say of series eight with clara where she's trying to have yeah. a relationship separate from her relationship with the doctor and she's finding yeah. just how impossible it is to keep those two things separate mm. from one another yeah exactly <clears throat> so the the people they brought in to play the students were they convincing were the was the acting good did you did you feel a chemistry between them do, either do of you know you, what go. <laughs> i i honestly didn't mind it i actually thought that they did i mean look they didn't get a hell of a lot of screen t screen time um, but yeah, I, I, I liked it. I thought they were all really good. I think it worked particularly well because it was an ensemble. It didn't rest on uh, two or three minor characters. There was a, a mm. good dynamic there and each one sort of got picked off as we went through in a sort of, you know, um, uh, Agatha Christie kind of way as well. So, uh, yeah, which is quite apt considering David Suchet's. Uh, oh, <laughs> when, when do we get yeah. to talk about David Suchet? <laughs> We've got to save him. But yeah, it was okay, also yeah. the it was also the classic teens in peril in a haunted house thing as well, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. Where they sort of turn up, there's something going on. It's like Evil Dead, where they find the book or whatever it is and read the thing out, and then all of a sudden they start disappearing one by one. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but also the other thing that the way it well, I don't tend to sort of go through in order on this podcast when I do this. The way it resolves, it's basically a Rapunzel in a tower at the centre of a fairy tale, and the house yes. is basically gobbling up children to feed her, which was yes. quite... Yeah, so the way it starts and the way it ends are, for me, two entirely different genres. So it goes from classic haunted house horror story to sort of classic fairy tale with the uh, princess trapped in a tower. And the way Mike Bartlett gets from one to the other, I thought he did a really good job. But I also thought that if there's an issue with the episode, it's in the sort of disconnect between those two ideas. So, OK, mm. I'm getting in quite deep now, but... But when you got to the ending, 
Did you feel that it was satisfactory or were there elements of it? Because this is my only issue with the end episode mm. is basically the ending, which I thought was a bit disconnected from the rest of the story. How did either of um, you two find it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll take this one. I yeah, Cole, yeah but, sure. Um, the first time I saw it, um, it did feel like a bit of a disconnect, only in the sense that you had... Uh, the sort of primacy of the mother-son uh, relationship as being the sort of, I don't want to say deus ex machina, but it did kind of remind me of something like Closing Time where there was a sort of love conquers all element. Not that I mind that. I actually think, think there's, a, there's a big place for that in Doctor Who. But it yeah. wasn't quite in keeping, as you say, with the sort of uh, creepy gothic horror elements that came beforehand. Um, but having said that, there was a number of things throughout the the, the plot that were um, foreshadowed around that um, that dynamic, the family dynamic. Yes, you know, yes, there were wonderfully telling sort of beautiful lines of dialogue that Suchet is given by Bar- uh, Mike Bartlett um, around family and the importance of it, and, and losing family as well. Um, <laughs> and I could sort of go on a mm. tangent there, uh, just in terms of Susan and also um, Bill's mother. But um, well, yeah. Uh, but he, on that point, the whole he's my grandfather. No, I'm not your grandfather. I'm yeah, more yeah. like your father. Well, that there foreshadows because she's saying he's one thing and he's saying he's something else. And then you get to the <laughs> end of the episode and it turns out that David Suchet has been saying is one thing. But in reality, yeah. he's something else. Yeah, there's a beautiful mirroring between, um, I suppose, the antagonist and protagonist in that regard. Um, and, and the way that that unfolds is probably what saved uh, that sort of revelation for me at the end. I didn't mind it. I mean, I, mm. I understand what you're saying, that there is a bit of a disconnect, but that, that lovely sort of, uh, those lovely moments of foreshadowing, um, the character pieces that you get with the Doctor and, and Bill and, and uh, uh, the landlord as well, I thought were, mm. were probably enough to save that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying I think it was necessarily a problem. I'm saying if there's a problem, that has to be where it is. Mm. But I think yeah. he... Uh, Mike Bartlett did a really good job of making... This is what I always look for when I watch a Doctor Who story or any kind of story, is is there a consistency of the ideas through the story? And, you know, as I'm always saying, do the things that get set up pay off? And do the things that pay off, were they set up properly? And in this instance, Mm. like I think in episode three, Thin Ice, and in episode one, The Pilot, there's a consistency of theme and idea throughout the entire episode that ties up all the subplots so that everything fits together like a jigsaw puzzle, which yes. I thought was missing in episode two. But episode two, yeah, it was still a beautiful looking episode. So, but, but yeah, yeah I think, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but this episode particularly, I thought he did a really good job of tying everything together. And the other part of that as well is if we had have had that scene with um, Harry revealing himself to be uh, Harry Sullivan's mm. grandson, that would have mm. been, again, just another level on which yeah. this episode was all about family ties and the way that mm. families are bound together. Yeah, so, definitely. So I think Mike Bartlett did a, a really good job of making sure that everything that was in the episode was in there for a reason and they all fitted comfortably together. Did yes. you... When we when we looked at the horror, the kind of horror that he had in that episode as well, mm. um, ghost stories tend to be, here's a place and here's something that's happened in the place. And the thing that's happened in the place tends to be distinct from the place. And the place is the house, the haunted house or whatever it is, it tends to be just a location to host the story. 
and the location isn't generally a part of the story itself. But again, with this, he's actually made the location an integral part of the narrative in a way that reminds me a bit of Japanese horror, like things like The Ring, where it's not about sort of here's a ghost, here's some kids, the ghost is going to frighten the kids, but here's a ghost, here's a kid, here's, in the case of The Ring, it's the technology, the videotape. And the videotape is of the location. And the, because the videotape works through a telly, the ghost is able to come through the telly to get the kids. Just mm. like in something like that, Mike Bartlett here is tying all the different elements of his story together so that even the thing that should be most remote from it, the house, which should just be sort of the thing in the background, which is where it takes place, is an absolutely fundamental part of the story that he's telling. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, and I think there's there's also sort of the parallel there to something like Ghostlight, where mm. um, the, the house is is integral to the story, as opposed to something like perhaps Image of the Fendile, where the the fetch priory is kind of just like a the the wallpaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, did you? Sort of... did... Oh, I was just going to say, what did you think of the horror aspects and how it worked? Um, well, I quite enjoyed it. I'm, I'm, in fact, one scene that stuck out for me. Uh, was probably the knocking in the hallway when it's sort of coming from all directions. And you've got uh, Bill and, um, is it Shireen? I think her name yeah. is Shireen. Mm. Standing outside of uh, Paul's door. And they think it's him mucking around inside, but then the knocks are just coming thick and fast from sort of all all directions. And the, and the door at the end of the corridor slams and stuff. That, that was actually, uh, I thought, very effective. Oh, yeah. It reminded me a little bit. Have you ever seen The Haunting, the 1963 one? I haven't. No, I can't say I have. Well, there's a scene in the haunting. The haunting is about it's about this house that's supposed to be haunted, and the question is: is it really haunted, or is it just people's imagination? It's a little right. bit like the H.G. Wells short story, "The Red Room," which was the inspiration. Well, I think it was the inspiration for "Listen," the episode "Listen." But oh, yeah. but there's a scene about halfway through the film where two of the main characters are in their bedrooms, and then there's this knocking in the hallway. And they're right. too scared to open the doors and find out what's going on outside. But the knocking just gets louder and more insistent and louder and more insistent. It's an absolutely terrifying scene. It really works. Yeah. And all you go in from is the audio of this knocking from in the corridor and the reactions mm. of the actors in their rooms. <laughs> yeah, that, it, It's yeah. probably <clears throat> one of the the best sort of horror tropes uh, when used properly, is the, the idea of what you cannot see rather than what you can see. It's that see. conceptual horror element, isn't yeah. it? Yes. I, yeah, I think yeah. also, um, in terms of the house, um, it, there was two sort of influences or at least um, parallels that I, that I could draw when I was watching it. Um, <laughs> there's, have you ever seen Malpertuis? It's a like film from the 70s based on the Jean Ray novel. No, I haven't. Okay, so the basic premise is that um, Olympian gods have been caught by these fishermen and uh, stitched into human skins, and it's just a, a you know a labyrinth of a house, and the whole thing just sort of descends into surrealism in a really wonderful, sinister, scary way, right. um, to the point where almost the narrative breaks down, and you're just left with this overriding sense of dread. Um, I really loved that um, sort of element that came through in this episode, but 
Um, the other thing that it's kind of brigadoon almost in a way, you know, every 20 years uh, the tendency yeah. needs to be renewed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you get the flashback to 97 and I had a bit of a squee moment, 1977 comes around and, and yes. it's Bowie's Heroes album and uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love I'm, that. I might point out that Stephen's sitting next to me in a David Bowie t-shirt <laughs> as right. he says that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, but it, they, yeah, that was a nice point, the 20 years. Although kind of I suppose that was one of the slightly odder points in it because you'd have to ask why it would need to be every 20 years. You'd think she'd need more constant feeding. But maybe yeah. that's maybe that's just when the energy levels run out. That was one of the few ideas that, to me, Let, didn't seem to fit. Yeah, yeah, I think I inferred that, but you're right. It never really called out as such. Mm. I, I, often, I actually did wonder as well sort of where the... Uh, well, the, the alien wood lice or the sentient wood lice sort of, sort of came from originally. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. but I mean, Steve, you pointed out that, you know, I mean, really that's not what the episode was about. Yeah. Uh, so in a sense, you can, you can pretty much forgive, uh, forgive that. Yeah. It, you know what? It was kind of like a, a torchwoody kind of thing. You know, mm. here's, here's this presence on, on earth, deal with it. Um, and it wasn't integral to the telling of the story, but it really added a lot to the, the, the mood, I think. Well, it was like last week. Last week, we never got to find out where the huge serpent in the temple. No, came that's from. right. Well, I, I, I kind of like to assume it's the Scarison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, that we're, was what I said we, too. I think <laughs> we were we were talking earlier as well about the, um, the 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 little links you can find to classic Who in this series at the moment that's airing that we're, that we're sort of picking up. I I definitely got. Uh, you know, Zygons from um, from thin ice, and, and it was simply down to the idea of, a, of an ancient sea creature stirring up the Thames, uh, yeah. and and things yeah. like Ghostlight with Knock Knock as well. Um, and even it, it, they're even quoting occasionally dialogue. He said, "Sleepers for tortoises last night," which yes, was the yes. Wing Chiang. Yes, yeah. so good. <laughs> and you know what else? Oh, this is a bit of a, a long bow to draw, I'm sure. But the the portrait on the on the stone floor there, I immediately thought of uh, Stones of Bloods. Yeah, I think that one is probably a bit of a long shot, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> there yeah, have been the quite a lot. I th- yeah. Going back to the topic of the um, the woodlice, the dryads, the, uh, mm. the the doctor called them. Yeah. Did okay. You, when so that, when that turned up, did you think that was okay, or did you think that was a slightly odd sort of do you know direction for the story to take? Do you know it, that they, it, we're coming down to that thing again with that horror trope? It's you know about what you what you don't see rather than what you do see. When you finally get that reveal, uh, it's 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 hard to know whether. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, it's it's hard to know. Um, um, well, it's hard. It's hard not to be disappointed because any reveal. Yes, is I think be that's what I'm trying to head. say. It is. It's hard yeah. not to be disappointed. Uh, the it's and it's funny too. Also, the, the sort of the way the doctor sort of coaxes the story out of how how the woodlice even came into the came into the picture, and we've got this little boy who just finds them in the garden. Yeah, um, I, look, I just think it's inevitable though. Like you know, we talked about earlier about the transitioning from one genre to another over across forty two minutes of television. Yeah. Um, it starts, I think, for me, like with the well, softly, softly sort of approach, and you get these little t- um, hints and and, and 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 tips. But it's the knocking on the door and the, mm. the, the walls that you mentioned, and that sort of starts to signal it. And at that point, you know that you're sort of cross, crossing over the threshold into something totally new. Um, I I got to admit that it worked for me. Um, probably and more so on on the visual level, you know the 
um, Pavel being sort of half consumed by the by the wood wall, and then yeah. that unbelievable um, way in which Harry is claimed by the the dryads. Um, that was yeah, a great just scene. Terrific. That, yeah. That's probably what saved it, really. If uh, the visuals for me, I yeah. think. I mean, they're just so. I mean, that that will live on in the memory. And if you're eight years old watching that, that's going to be as prominent as you know uh, any of the classic Doctor Who's that we might be prominent in our imagination as when we were growing up. Um, that the, was that was truly terrifying. Yeah, and the thing is, it's Doctor Who, so in the end, mm. it, it always has to find a sci-fi explanation. And because, yeah. and because, I suppose partly because it's more still for kids, then there has to be an explanation. Because I think, you know, occasionally you can get away with a story where there's not really an explanation. But I think you're kind of underserving your audience if you say. Right, we're not going to have a proper explanation too often. I think kids really expect, you know, when it, if you're eight and you're sitting down to watch a horror story or a sci-fi story or any kind of a mystery story, at the end of the mystery, you want to know what was causing the mystery. You don't do. You? you want to know. You want to understand it. That, yeah. Like you say, there's exceptions, and that's that's for me is listen from um, 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was kind of a sort of converse side to that. There were elements yeah. of listen that were here and vice versa. Mm. Speaking mm. of the uh, scene in the wood panels, by the way, that was a little bit earth shock. Oh, oh. the side went halfway through the door. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back as well. Yeah, yeah the carbon. Yeah, sure. I, I did think of that too. <laughs> Frozen in carbon, yeah. <laughs> But I tell you what, the other side of that is that, apart from the fact that it reminds us of a couple of things, the fact mm. that he's still awake and sentient and blinking and saying, yes, but his mouth there's... is covered so he can't speak. So he's trying to yeah, tell them, yeah. don't turn the stereo off because that's the only thing that's <laughs> keeping me alive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, first reaction for me was, oh, oh, my God, a corpse in the wall. This is fantastic. But then it, it just went to that other other level where he wasn't actually dead. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was kind of, I mean, if I'd have been eight when I was watching that, that would have been shocking, but brilliantly staged. Yeah. And the, the bit where David Suchet then casually walks in and just casually turns the record player off. <laughs> I do love how he just turns up. He do, you don't know quite where he's come from. Yeah, and of course this is all consistent with the story because A, Mike Bartlett is giving us clues as to what it is that causes these wood lice things to come out of the woodwork. And B, it's all consistent with the fact that David Suchet's character lives in the middle of this house, undetected Mm. by all the other people who might ever be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's all brilliantly put together. Mm. So was there, well, well, we get to David Suchet in a moment and the resolution. Anything else from that sort of first half an hour? The little montage sequence at the start where the students are uh, looking for a house, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, and if we can all hark back to our student (laughs) days uh, and those times where we would have been share housing, uh, yeah, it is kind of like that. Um, Yeah, the, uh, the, the grand idea of sharing that house together kind of uh, can go up in smoke a little bit when you actually see what's on offer. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Hmm. Oh, gosh. Um, you know what? I, I think um, I just want to echo the, the idea that we had this wonderful sort of narrative foreshadowing throughout, um, uh, you know, the wind and um, not being there, but the creaking of the trees really early on. Oh, yeah. What was that line, the doctor's line? Um, didn't, didn't you hear the, the trees screaming when we arrived? Uh, and she said there was no uh, She said that was the wind. 
Bill said that was the wind, and the doctor said, <laughs> yeah, no, well, yeah. there was no wind. Yeah, just those clever little sort of drops in, in, of hints that were, were really fantastic, I thought. Um, and, you know, the, the, the freshers' party um, sort of uh, seated really early on, and then you sort of get that as perhaps the, the moment in which, uh, you know, well, not to spoil it, but I suppose the, the moment at which the resolution turns and mm. uh, we start to get the, uh, um, the fix to it. Yeah, yeah. I tell you one moment that really stuck out to me as well. It's um, the tall guy. What was he called? Paul. Paul I think he was. Paul, yeah. yeah. And the way he's trying to flirt with Bill, <laughs> and then at the moment when she says, she sort of turns around to him and says, "Look, I realise you're trying to flirt with me, but you're onto a hiding to nothing because I'm really not into boys." And yes. his reaction and- there. Apart from being pricelessly funny. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. His pride wasn't hurt in the slightest. He's like, oh, I wasn't even with a chance then. No, it was such... It felt so real because I I suspect we've all been in situations, you know, especially when you're younger, where you fancy somebody Mm. and you think, well, my God, it's one of those beware of what you uh, dream of ideas i suppose <laughs> in that if you ever actually got to the together with the person that you fancied you wouldn't know what to do with yourself no. and so <laughs> and so this guy's as terrified that she will sort of um, be acquiescent to his advances as he is of being spurned and in the end when he's spurned it's actually a relief I just thought that felt. I just thought that felt like a really honest, true line, and like a really sort of genuine moment. I would agree. Yeah, and I think it also is really important in a story like this, um, in particularly its trajectory, to have that sort of very earthy, everyday, um, you know, identifiability before you start mm. going into the the wood life coming out of the yeah. <laughs> out of the house and consuming people. Mm. It was almost a shame. Well, actually, no, they all, they all didn't die in the end. But, I mean, they, all of those characters were actually quite likeable. Yeah. Um, scenes like that with Paul were, yeah, evident of that, I think. There was that moment when the knocking comes from the other side of the room to where they're expecting. They're all sitting around on the sofas. And all of a sudden yeah. you get a reverse shot and they're all looking through the door. And I just thought at that moment then that they were all playing it so well because there was just that one yeah. shot of them all framed together and you just thought uh, you know the thought that went through my mind at that moment was there's not one of them there who's not doing a really good job and there's not one of them there that I don't want to see make it through to the end because I want to spend more time with them yeah that's, yeah. that's a good point yeah I, I, I agree I, I, I kind of I do actually hope that there is another share house where uh, where they'll all um... yeah I want to see them again yeah yeah I yeah could... That's one of those I, things I think, where you think if they're going to come back to Earth later in the series, you really want to see these characters again. You really want mm. Bill to actually have found a house with these guys and you want to see them. Yeah, Even yeah. if it's only sort of minor parts, you want them to be the Mickeys and the Jackies of this year. Definitely. And it would be great for the Doctor as well. So the, the ice has already been broken there with him. Yeah. With him yeah. and them, you know, after that uh, Roller King adventure they've just had. <laughs> Um, oh, there were some great moments, actually, where he turns up and they're like, you brought the Doctor? Yeah. <laughs> you could read yeah. that on so many different levels, but it was so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and Shireen has that incredible line, uh, what's he going to do, lecture? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, David Suchet, then, what did uh, we think? Oh, uh, my goodness. Um, what a performance. I I just wanted to see more of him and Capaldi yes. on the screen together um, with no one else around them. But oh, wow, I mean, there, he's one. He's given some amazing dialogue and he delivers mm. it incredibly. But 
uh, the emotional oh, <laughs> performance, yeah. particularly yeah. at the end. Mm. That uh, that got me actually. That that um, line, and I can't remember it word for word, but that line: "If you could preserve the one who brought you into this world, wouldn't you do the same?" Sort of yeah. along those lines. Uh, that got me. He he, and it got it got the doctor and Bill as well. It's yeah. a wonderful cutaway shot, and they they understand entirely there. Mm. They're just the desperation in his in his delivery. Um, it was yeah, it was amazing. That's something that this week had in common with last week is that it kind of the story has appealed in a way to the principal characters on a level that they can understand on a level that yeah. sort of affects them personally. Yes. So, so I don't know whether that's going to be a theme of the series or whether that's just coincidence that, well, two out of three mm. weeks, because it was in the pilot as well, of course, because of the um, the whole thing of being the pilot being the potential girlfriend for Bill. But it seems to me that it seems to be a theme of this series that the stories, apart from being the usual sort of sci-fi horror kind of thing that you'd expect in Doctor Who, are also affecting yeah. the characters at this very personal level. I wonder if that's a little bit of foreshadowing for something else, which we'll get into at the end. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, do, I do agree, though. There's an emotional integrity and honesty about the way in which the characters, not just the Doctor and Bill, but also we see a lot of the um, the minor sort of supporting cast as well are written this year. Mm. Um, I, I'm enjoying that very much this year. I think but it's... We, oh, no, it's all right, go up. Well, I was going to well, say, know, I don't think it's that different from what Stephen Moffat's always done. It's, it's mm. as is always the case, it's the same ingredient that's just given a, a, a slightly different process through the cooker, whatever... But it's, it's mm. this is kind of to me what he's always done. It's just tweaked ever so slightly, and for you know for that slight tweaking, a lot of people who previously weren't all that interested seem to be getting back into it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I finding think... it a, incredibly different from what he was doing in series eight and series nine, but but the the difference has been Bill Pearl Mackie, I suppose. Yeah, I think so, and also. Um... Capaldi's really developed this incarnation as time's gone along as well. Uh, he's a completely different doctor. Yeah, to what we saw. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you guys might have actually even been speaking about that last week. Uh, yeah, we were, um, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if um, if this sort of woolly head Capaldi met the, the more groomed <laughs> and uh, yeah. and fierce Capaldi of, uh, of Series 8, you know, whether they'd really like each other. Probably not. This is no. Again, though, that the last two incarnations of the Doctor have both lasted so long. We may have only had three years on telly with Matt and three yeah. years on telly with Peter Capaldi, but Matt yeah. Smith's Doctor lasted hundreds of years, and Peter Capaldi certainly the did. Best part of a hundred himself. Yeah, that's mm. right. Because he's sort of me he's meant to be the um, at the university for fifty years, isn't it? Yeah, and prior to that, yeah. he had twenty-four years with River Song. So oh, yes. that's right, and of course. Um, <laughs> Two million years in the confessional dial. And... <laughs> well, yeah. I don't think he counts that himself, though. No, no, no. no. I don't think so either. Um, but, yeah, I it's... Go on, sorry. go on. You go no, ahead. I was just going to say, when we were talking about Bill before, there's uh, it's, it's Pearl Mackey who I'm sure is, is, is uh, you know, a great deal to do with mm. this. But there's some beautiful writing. There's some incredible grace notes to this character. She's clever and brave, you know. There's that moment where um, they, they tell Paul to go and investigate. He's <laughs> too scared. Oh, so yeah, yeah, she yeah. Goes. Off she goes. Yeah, yeah I forgot about her. that. Yeah. And then that wonderful sort of moment right at the end where she cracks the sort of key to the narrative at the end. Um, mm. And she goes, no, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why would a father bring, you know, <laughs> these bugs to <laughs> a dying daughter? It doesn't make any sense. It's the other way around. Um, I love 
that sort yeah. of really sort of tenacious, insightful um, aspect to her character. It's great to see. Mm. Oh yeah, she's she's been see what they did with Clara was they made her more by force of personality and equal for the Doctor. But what they're yeah, doing yeah. with um, Bill is they're making her an equal f- to the Doctor by force of inquisitiveness and intellect. Yeah, mm. that's, so a, the, that's a good way of putting it. So it's the same to me. It's the same story, but being told from two slightly different angles. Mm. Yeah. On the subject think- of. Um, Sorry, on the subject of um, David Suchet, though, he's almost oh, yes. unrecognisable, mm. I think, from Poirot. Oh, yeah, I think you know, he's, he's hiding behind a persona when he, when he plays that part. Obviously, there's a lot of baggage that goes with it. Um, but nonetheless, he very much brings you know, a, a really wonderful sort of uh, acting style. And I think we see that again here. But as you yeah. say, it's divorced from that. Um, he's incredible. Do, do, you know, mm. do you know what this character reminds me of? Mm. I'm going to go back into, uh, into classic literature here. He's Mephistopheles. Oh, go on. He's, well, he's, he's, he's given these six young kids uh, an incredible opportunity or an incredible gift. But, of course, there's always a price with Mephistopheles and he always comes uh, to, to, um, to call and, 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 and have that fulfilled. Um, there's, there's a beautiful sort of sinister aspect to the way in which he sort of, you know, not just sort of appears in the middle of nowhere in, or from nowhere in, in the house, but, you know, he, the, the tuning fork is just so sinister. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. You know... Uh, his, his delivery with that as well. Oh, just I love chilling. the tuning fork. Yeah. I love it. I love that. It's like a, this sort of practice little tap that he gives. Mm-hmm. Like he's done it so many times. Uh, I love it. It's like an extension of his own hand. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what it means. You just know it's, it's there's something terrible that's going to come from it. And it well, works. It happens yeah. So, yeah, it happens so quietly. The first time he does it, it just looks like an eccentricity and you don't even barely register that he's doing it. And then the yeah. second time it becomes a bit sinister, and then the third mm-hmm. time is like, oh All right, <laughs> he's doing something there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. There's some really clever touches in the script, and some really subtle touches, and not just yeah. in the script, but in the direction and the performance as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Um, well, the writers are. Um, he wrote for theatre, I think. I think I, I was only just looking on Wikipedia a bit earlier, but. Um, but you know, you, I get a bit of that with the characters, the way they've been written, um, and also uh, Suchet's gravitas that he brings to his role as well, and as a stage actor too. Yeah, as a stage actor, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about theatre and stage is, a, a performance of a play might go on for a month or six years or whatever, but every night you've only got ninety minutes to introduce yes. the audience to those people and make them care mm. enough about them that by the yes. end of the play. And in Doctor, in television, you tend to, in series, have a lot longer, so you can do it much more slowly. But in Doctor mm. Who, because you're introducing a new cast every week, you kind of have to, and in something like Poirot or Morse or Lewis or whatever as well, you've mm. got mm. to use that shorthand to introduce the audience to those characters and make them feel like real people. And this week yes. you did a really good job of that. The last couple of weeks they've you know, made a really good job of that. I, I agree with it's that. It's a yeah. beautiful economy in the, in, in the way in which that's done this week. I, mm. Yeah, I love that for it. Yeah. So the wooden girl, what did you think of the wooden girl? Um, that reveal again, but the fingers around the side of the, um, <laughs> what do they call those things that you change behind those sort of... Uh, oh, it's the, a screen. The screen. Yeah, we'll just go with screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The fingers curling around the, the side of the screen uh, before she came into view. 
uh, yeah, it was it was actually pretty unnerving. I thought, um, but you know, I don't know. Uh, th- there was a human aspect to her as well. Yeah, um, uh, and that sort of that was mm. maybe a little bit later in the piece, but yeah, um, you look past it, I guess. Uh, I don't know, Steve. What do you think? Uh, I, just, I, just, I don't know. I just thought, sort of thought, this is a very creepy way of uh, establishing what mm. probably is the, the, you know, the, the, the villain of the piece, but incredibly mm. sympathetic with it as well. I thought. Mm. My only, um, well, my only problem there is that by that point it's gone so far into fairy tale, you kind of yeah. have to suspend your disbelief over the fact that she's been sitting in this room for seventy years, forgotten who her son is been told by this guy that he's her father and took it entirely on trust. And, you know, has she not noticed that she's not been out of this room for 70 years? And I think, obviously, you know, you can sort of hand wave those things away. If she's been stuck in the room, of course she's sort of muddled up on what her relationship yeah, is with this person. Yeah, yeah. but but you, it's kind of, it felt that, that was the one bit that felt to me like a bit too much of a hand wave in that at the start of the episode, you've got these all very realistic characters it's all very modern day and then at the end mm. you're so deep into fairy tale it's yeah i just couldn't suspend my disbelief that last little bit at the end i think i look i got i was getting that way until we had that incredibly emotional sort of uh, exchange between right yeah uh, eliza and the landlord at mm. the end, and that that salvaged it for me i mean i don't this is going to sound terrible but for me as long as Doctor Who is emotionally convincing. I don't really care about, you know, uh, yeah. how many holes a Cyberman's plot has got or, you know, what the <laughs> what mm. the Daleks are up to. And, you know, all of those things are kind of like the uh, the means by which the, the emotional integrity of the story is delivered. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and I think we got that at the end. I mean, and, and yeah. casting a Suchet is, is obviously integral to that. Yeah, and again, just going back to that performance, that delivery from him as well. Oh, yeah. It was... Uh, I could watch that again. Yeah, I could watch that, yeah, quite. <laughs> definitely, well, yeah. Well, somebody put up a, um, a petition I saw after the episode had finished, petitioning the BBC and um, Chris Chibnall and his producer, his executive producer, new one, and saying, mm. uh, bring back David Suchet as the landlord. And I just, my head sank into my hands and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was a perfect one-story character. I, but, I yeah. do, I do agree, yeah. Um, well, this is the juncture at which we usually score it out of ten. Mm. Ah, Okay, so, so who goes uh, first? <laughs> well, I, well, I tell you what, I can go first if you like, because I've already written a review and submitted it, and it'll probably be out by the time people hear this. So my score okay. isn't isn't going to be a mystery. I gave it eight out of ten. Oh, that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? I yeah, agree. I think it yeah. was really, really good. But like I say, mm. I think there were a couple of issues that meant, unlike last week, where I thought the issues were so tiny that they didn't mm. matter at all. This week, I thought the issues were just slightly more fundamental, and so they just yeah. kept it from edging any higher. So, okay. Stephen, you said you were also an 8 out of 10? Yeah, mm. I am. Um, my, my scoring is a little bit different to yours. I know that you gave Thin Ice 10 last week. Mm. Um, and I think it's, I mean, for me, 10 is, uh, you know, if you're looking at a normative distribution, those rare one or two examples per Doctor that you get right at the top end across the 50 years, so I tend to reserve that. Your nines for me are, you know, are something as incredible as heaven sent, and this sits very comfortably between a seven and eight, and I'm leaning towards eight of the two. Fair enough. Paul, then, how about you? 
Well, uh, as I said, that was very interesting uh, because I also scored an 8 out of 10. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I know. We were talking about it earlier. We both agreed it was an 8 out of 10 for both of us. Um, I would agree with Stephen um, in regards to the 10s. Um, I tend to use them a bit sparingly, I think. Um, but, you know, but, but the thing, a 10 for me is an episode like Heaven Sent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that's a ten out of ten. That's a that's a home run. That's a piece of art. That, the whole thing uh, for me it just resonates. Um, Do you know what though? I thought last week's quietly was. I th- yes, yeah. Doctor Who doesn't usually address themes as powerful as and important as that, and it did it there so was... lightly and yet mm. so thoroughly that I thought that was why it deserved the top mark because I thought it did a really good job of addressing mm. something really important and doing it yeah. in a way that didn't make it feel like it was lecturing you. No, I would agree, actually. It, w- it, was, actually, it was actually very cleverly done. I think yeah. for what it set out to do, it actually ticked all the boxes. Um, I just don't know if, if it sort of is as mythic in my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, Terror of the Zygons, for instance, might well be. Yeah. I know what you're saying, gotta, yeah. yeah. You've got to love the pure historical, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, good to see that again. Yeah, definitely. And quite a large set they built as well. I think all that bridge. Well, the whole um, thing. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing was built, yeah. Well, that uh, bit, um, guys, there's a bit yeah. later on where they walk past some houses on a terrace, and I'm thinking, oh, they've gone on to location now. And then on a rewatch, I noticed that that was part, again, mm. of the big set, because that mm. was in the background of one of the shots earlier on when they were on the ice. And yeah, I'm just thinking, yeah. wow, that set's even more impressive than I thought it was at first. <laughs> yet, yet also, and you guys pointed this out as well last week, that there's that closed-in feeling, like, much like Face the Raven, Sarah Dollard's other script. Like, you've mm. got that, the set feels... A centralised location. Yeah, 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 definitely. So you don't you, feel so out in the open, yeah. You've both been enjoying it all so far. Yeah, yeah. Love it, uh, loving it, really. Um, I... Honestly, have to say that uh, Pearl Mackey is amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, great. I casting. I love her. I think she's fantastic, uh, and I'm actually enjoying Nardole too. And I was a little bit worried. <laughs> I will admit, <laughs> to begin with, in the early days, I was a little bit concerned. But uh, no, no, I'm liking him too. Can Can I talk about Nardole for a few? Well, we'll moments? get to. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to say we'll get to what Nardole's okay. sort of place in the story is in a minute because i think we're going to okay. go into spoilers territory so we'll save that but yeah talk oh, about nardole because yes, yes. nardole's excellent yes he is wonderful for me um he's the shakespearean fool he's someone who's able to look in from the outside mm. and and tell the home truths that no one else is able to to either see or, or wanting mm. to say it's great i i do love his little disapproving tisks tis- yep. as well <laughs> uh you're not supposed to go off world well i didn't go off world you know it's it's uh, it's great yeah <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's perfectly judged. And you're right. Yeah. Shakespearean fool, that is absolutely what it is. Of course it is, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, yeah, he's got that balance of the humour and, and that sort of perceptiveness as well. Yeah, yeah. He's doing a fantastic job. And every mm. week since the first week, I'm thinking at the end of the episode, <laughs> we need more of him. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Because we always go back to that vault we have so far. Oh, yeah, I can't yeah. Wait um, to see what's in there. Yeah, oh. We've all got our theories, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talk- that's the thing I'm saving for a couple of minutes' time. But, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. What was I about to say there? I forget. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Oh, next week, <laughs> of course. He is in it for longer, isn't he? 
because he goes along for uh, the journey next week. Yeah, by yes, the oh, yeah. brilliant, fantastic. Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah, so this is... Well, Stephen Moffat was talking in the magazine about the fact that he just wrote him into a smaller part in the earlier episodes, perhaps mm. not really thinking about what he would do with the character later, whether maybe whether maybe he'd not have a reason to be in it anymore. But in fact, because he was working so well, he decided he would bring it in, bring him into it more. So from, I suppose, next week, it looks like Nardole might be you know, one of the central trio, as opposed to being off to the side of the central duo. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, I think so. Right, I've got an email to read mm. from Nick Knoll about last week's episode, since as as we were just talking right. about it a little bit. He says, yeah. hello, JR and the Blue Boxers. I think what he really mm. means is hello, JR and the new Tahuas. <laughs> I, I figured that, yeah. <laughs> he says... It took me a while to get around to watching episode three, but it was well worth the wait. It immediately reminds one of The Beast Below, with the episode focused on a seemingly violent creature harnessed for human purposes that ultimately ends up being benign and non-threatening when set free. The Doctor's point Mm. that a society or species is judged by how it treats the least of its members is really a biblical restatement of Jesus' philosophy that one will be Mm. judged by how one treats the sick the infirm or the imprisoned. It was not coincidental that Jesus is mentioned earlier in the story. The dialogue was crisp and Bill was transformed from the annoying question bot of the last episode into a deep thinking, emotionally complex character. Pearl Mackey (laughs) was superb in her delivery, but it is easy that the dialogue, it, it was easy to understand that the dialogue was much better penned this week as compared to last. This episode's version of Bill, who will hopefully continue to evolve, will be a pleasure to watch. The ending had an emotional punch as well. This episode will be well regarded as one looks back at the stories from the Stephen Moffat era. Who or what is in the vault? I am intrigued, but at this point stumped. And that's from Nicholas Knoll from Smithville in Missouri. And that, I believe, is the perfect juncture for us Mm. to say to anybody who's listening, if you don't want to listen to us talking about what might or might not be coming up, turn off the podcast at this point, because we're going to have a few minutes on spoilers and stuff, I think, Mm. before we go. One of my favourite things. (laughs) (laughs) Really or not, though, because, well, this is... I tend to go by what's out in the public arena by official means. And if it's not official means, I tend to not go looking for it. Oh, well, I, I wish I, I could I, say the same. I think Cole's oh, really? an wow. absolute spoiler, spoiler hunter, whereas I'm, I'm the other side, actually. I try to actually, you know, keep the media blackout on all of the official stuff before the first episode. Oh, really? Um, so so I've got yeah. one of each of you here this week, have I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, okay, I'm going to... There's not really any way for me to avoid talking about this without mentioning this, but Stephen Moffat, mm. I hope this doesn't spoil it too much for you, Stephen Moffat says that they'll be opening the vault in episode six. Yes, okay. I did read that as well. Yeah. I had no idea. I well, actually thought... Well, it's only two weeks away, so I'm not spoiling the end of the series. No, 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 no. Um, I actually thought um, at the end of Knock Knock, uh, hang on a second, is he going to do it now? Because that would be classic Moffat, isn't it? Sort of yeah, say yeah. it's going to happen in two episodes' time and then just spring it on you in episode well, opens, four instead. And the light falls on Peter Capaldi and it goes to the next time trailer. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was going to happen. I could feel yeah, it. Coming, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted it to keep going. Oh, it was so uh, close. Well, I, I know. I have my theory. I don't know whether I should say it or not. 
Go on. Yeah, it's a popular on. one. It's a popular one. Uh, I'm not alone. I, I think it's Sim. I think so too. But then yeah. one of the reasons why is my under. You know the the trailer that went out at the end of episode one, where they showed yeah. what was coming up yes. across the series as well as what yeah. was just coming up mm-hmm. next week. Yeah, it was a series overview. It's, it's an odd one. Yeah, that was very odd, wasn't it? To have next week yeah. this, and then another trailer immediately afterwards saying, and later this year. My yeah. understanding is, I believe, when they showed that trailer of what was coming up later on at the preview they had a few weeks before the series started, the one where the leak about John Sim came from, that that mm. was a trailer that had been made just for that preview and wasn't intended to be on the episode when it got broadcast. Ooh. But because the news from that trailer leaked, they decided to go ahead and put it on the broadcast version anyway, because everybody already knew. <laughs> I believe I might be wrong about that, but I believe that's what happened. Sounds so, pretty logical. Yeah. So, so if it hadn't leaked that John Sim was going to be in it, and that trailer mm. hadn't been on the first episode, when the vault doors open, and you know, presuming that it's John Sim, it's John Sim, that would have mm. been the biggest shock because oh, yeah. we've never had the doctor going back to a previous master before so yeah. everybody's everybody's already sort of you know comfortable with the idea that the master is missy johnson would have been the last person you'd have expected in the box unless of course a, he was on a trailer a five couches. weeks earlier yeah 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 <laughs> So that's why I think it's still possible it might be him, even though it doesn't seem now like it would be a surprise mm. for it to be him. It would have been a surprise if we hadn't have had that trailer. Yes, I think so. Um, I I do feel like it 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 could still be him, uh, and whether um, it was an odd sort of scene, wasn't it, at the end of Knock Knock? He said the the Doctor sort of brings dinner home, yeah, uh, and sort of uh, you know appeases through the wall of the vault. How about a bit of dinner? Um, opens the vault and goes in, so it's 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 sort of unclear. Well, I think it's clearly someone that he cares about, and yes, you know, we know that the master is yes. is, his, is his best enemy, or mm. you know, his childhood friend. So, yeah. If you look sense. back, so on, that's the question too. Yeah, is it? Well, like, if you look, sorry, I was going to say, if you look back on on that point, at how the end of time ends, the John Sim master, specifically the John Sim master, has. Mm turn tail and he's on the doctor's side and he's what rescues the doctor from Gallifrey being pulled back through into the pocket universe into the um the time time loop rather yeah so yeah. At the end of that episode john sim has made a self-sacrifice on the doctor's behalf so if john sim then mm. his master then turns up the doctor is kind of indebted to him at that point isn't he yes do you so know that... what all this is building to do, do you i think though go on i mean if if you've got John Sim, uh, you're only bringing him back to to have him on screen at the same time as uh, Michelle Gomez, and I think we're yeah. going to get a two masters mm. uh, story. And you can't have uh, <laughs> you can't have two masters; you can only have one. I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be an almighty showdown between the two of them. Yeah, could be. Well, we'll have that to wait would, and see. I think we're, I'm definitely secretly hoping for a two master story. <laughs> Well, I think Stephen Moffat has more or less said that that's what there's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, there you go. And of course, Stephen Moffat loves to play with the format of the series and with its possibilities. Yeah. So something like, if there's this almighty showdown between Sim and Gomez, and Gomez turns out to be 
that the reason why Sim regenerates into mm-hmm. Gomez, that's mm-hmm. something yeah. Doctor Who's never done before, a previous incarnation mm. of the Doctor being the actual reason why the current incarnation regenerates into the future one. So just as with sort of turning the Master into a woman, for example, something that hadn't been done mm. before, but that could yeah. be done and that should be done, and it was just a case yeah. of why had nobody ever done that? I think mm. having Gomez triggering Sim's regeneration into Gomez feels like not just something plausible, but something that, that would spring out of the mind of somebody like Stephen Moffat. I, I love the I, idea. I, I do I love the idea to <laughs> Yeah, And uh, this being his swan song series, if ever Moffat was going to uh, go, gonna toy with it, now's the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And okay, on another note, and if you've both heard the last sort of two or three Blue Box podcasts, you'll have heard me talking about this, but... Is it a red herring or is it foreshadowing when Bill Mackey calls the Doctor <laughs> Grandfather? Grandfather, yes. And then later <laughs> in the episode, there's a mention of regeneration. And yeah, JR, I'm just going to go on the record and say that I am actually 100% with you on this theory. <laughs> I really? love this idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what lends it weight is that the way in which Peter Capaldi, what, two, three years ago, was talking mm. about how he would love, and very emotionally and heart, heart, heartwarmingly, talking mm. about how he really wanted to, uh, to the Doctor to see his granddaughter again. Yes. Yeah. And, and if you know, you're going to do... We've... Go on, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, he's, he's given him Mondays and Cybermen. Mm. He's going to give him this, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I think anything Capaldi wants, Moffat will probably <laughs> deliver uh, yeah. in his last series. Yeah. As long as it's sensible and it plays yes, for an course. audience. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the, I think Capaldi said one, at one stage a couple of years ago, I'd love to see the Axons come back. <laughs> and, and Moffat's response was uh, they just look like overgrown BAFTAs. You know? So I don't think we're going to see the Axons anytime soon. But yeah, Shame. as you say, within reason. <laughs> but then, then um, you know, I, I've always said about Stephen Moffat will tell a story if he feels that it works for a, a casual audience, for a mainstream audience. And the story of the Doctor's granddaughter absolutely does. And the other side mm. of that coin is Stephen Moffat's always telling Stephen Moffat's always being accused of turning the character, the companion into a cipher by having some kind of mystery or some yeah, kind right. of twist about how they're introduced. But the way I've always read it is that he's telling stories about extr- about ordinary people to whom something extraordinary either has or happened or will happen. Sure. And people are yes. kind of confusing the ordinariness of the character with the extraordinariness of the story. Yep. Here, on the other hand, what he's done is he started the series by giving us what to all intents and purposes looks absolutely like an ordinary character, to whom nothing extraordinary is happening, outside of the fact, obviously, that they've joined the Doctor on his travels, what more Stephen Moffat-y way could you end that story about that Hmm. completely ordinary person than by having them regenerate into the Doctor's granddaughter or whatever? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) It's such a good idea. It's brilliant. And he, Um, I think that if if he did it well... And it worked, and people had fallen mm. in love with Bill, and he had, you know, a nice short scene for um, uh, Carol Ann Ford at the end, so we could see mm. the regeneration. And if yeah. he had, and if he played it in such a way that by the end of the series, the Doctor seeing his granddaughter was an emotional payoff for him that everybody re- was on board with and resonated, then. He, this would be the one time where Stephen Moffat would do the 
the sort of supernatural character twist and fandom would say good on you mate you did a really good job there and i thank you for it possibly absolutely yeah yeah that's how i'm seeing things currently but you know another fortnight's time i might have completely changed my mind (laughs) i mean then you've got you've got the you've got the frame picture of susan on the desk yeah uh you know you've got um the uh, oh, the, the references this week to grandfather that that mm. really are I, if this is a red herring it's going to be an incredible red herring but yeah. <laughs> i think for for the ordinary sort of lay person watching it i think mm. it's it's a beautiful just seeding the idea yeah yeah mm. and for fans it's like well is it or isn't it going to be that because you know stephen moffat likes to pull the rug but then sometimes Stephen Moffat likes to do the really obvious thing and <laughs> yeah. and and hides but, it by making the audience think he's going to pull the rug. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that it looks like a red herring is all he needs for it not to be a red herring. Yeah, so just going back to the, the sorry, the frame picture on the desk of Susan, it was, I was just thinking then, you know, you've got the, the pen holder full of all the old sonic screwdrivers, <laughs> yeah. which I loved, I loved. Is that? I don't know whether that's that means something. Whether it's an, an indication of all the years that have, you know, everything that's happened between now and Susan, or yeah, yeah. what? I'm not sure. I don't know. It yeah. would work as that. They said it was just a bit of set dressing, and they hadn't really thought about it. But no, it oh. absolutely works as a. As no, a... I just lingered a bit too much. I think to be yeah. accidental. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know my. F- the very first time we saw the vault in that first episode, my instant mm-hmm. thought was, what's in the vault? Somehow mm. the Doctor's past and the series will end yeah. with the Doctor opening the vault and his past coming out. And so you get a story about Mondays mm. and Cybermen well, or whatever. Steve, you had a theory early on. Um, you thought it might have actually been Gallifrey in the vault. Yeah, but obviously it's a person now. So. Yeah, well, we know it is definitely a person now, yeah. Well, of course, Gallifrey was free by the time of Hellbent. So... Mm. For Gallifrey still to be in a pocket universe, that didn't add up to me. Mm, but then, of okay. course, it's timey-wimey, so this could be set before <laughs> that, and Moffat could have retrospectively gone back to tell the story of how Gallifrey escapes from the pocket universe. True, yeah. So, you know, even that's not entirely ruled out, and if Gallifrey is in the pocket universe, presumably, you know, there's somebody there who the Doctor talks to, that's all it would take. Yeah, are we allowed to talk about spoilers for the Christmas special that are sort of floating around, or is that not really the time or the place? Uh, no, we're in a spoiler territory, and we've brought it up on the Blue Box podcast before, and if people are still listening, then it serves them yep. right if they don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, apologies apologies if you guys have already covered this one. This is sort of in regards to the idea that David Bradley might be returning yeah, as, yeah. Um, as Doctor Number One, uh, and I think what a fitting goodbye to Capaldi that would be, having uh, 12 and 1 in an adventure together. But one of the things I was reading about was the idea that that first time we see Capaldi at the end of day of the doctor, it's just his eyes. Everything that's happening now is leading up, is leading up to that moment where all the doctors come together and, and save Gallifrey. That's that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I read this too. And we didn't talk about this last week. So yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'm glad I got in first. (laughs) (laughs) The idea being that, Peter Capaldi in the day of the Doctor, where you just see his eyebrows, is literally just before he regenerates into the yes, next one. Yes, Ooh, yes, yes. I like that. Yes. So you're seeing yeah. Capaldi before you get to see any of Peter Capaldi's Doctor. You're seeing the very end of his life cycle. That's right, <laughs> Steve. I'm so sorry, mate. I've just I've just gone and ruined it. Oh, well, it. no, I haven't. I mean, we don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds bloody 
bloody good, doesn't it? No, but what you're saying is, is Capaldi, you've got the first Doctor, mm. you've got Mondasian Cybermen, you've mm. got Susan. Mm. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's not forget the Mondasian Cybermen too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That little... This is... that. Well, yeah, this is what Matt and I were saying. It's all about generations, isn't it? First and last yeah. Doctor, two generations of Susan, two generations of Cybermen, two generations mm. of the Master. Yeah. The way this series has been going, where everything's been foreshadowed and everything is... And it's all about themes that thread through the yeah. stories and then from one yeah. story to another. That's It does seem like a theme. And if the only connection that... Pearl Mackey that, that Bill has to that theme of generations is the photographs that the Doctor took in the first episode. That would feel like she's been left out somehow. So it feels to me like to include her properly in this series, there has to be some kind of generational theme going on with the character that we're just not yet aware of. Hmm. Yeah. So any more or... Is that it for well, spoilers this week? For spoilers, um, well, you know what? Nothing on the top of my head. Um, Steve's, Steve's. Uh, yeah, I've been thoroughly st- spoiled tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it got to the end of that episode, and you had the piano coming from inside the TARDIS, and then he says, "Oh, we've been at a haunted house where that's been eating children," and all of a sudden the piano goes, and all of a sudden the piano gets very chirpy. Was there any other yeah. thought than that it must be either Gomez or Sim? Inside well, there. yeah, and and Steve's record, I didn't pick it, but it was Pop Goes the Weasel was the tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and that's such a missy thing to do. You would think uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, potentially, potentially, Sims Master, because eating children and the last time we oh, saw yes. him, of course, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was devouring people and all sorts of other yeah. things as well. So, you know, it's kind of. Don't know which way it's going to fall, but it's got to be one of those two, right? Yeah, I'm enjoying finding out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we may find out next week if next week's episode ends on a cliffhanger. Who knows? That's true. That's true. So, yeah. And then we'll get the sort of repercussions of it in episode six. I don't know. Yeah. Right. On that point, I think that's where we'll leave it. But thank you both Mm. for joining me. Thank you, you so it. much. Well, no, you've Thank done you me so a real favour this week because I was at a loose end. And at one point I was contemplating sitting down with just the microphone and trying to do it on my on my own. Oh, uh, <laughs> Any time you might want to have us, I think oh, we'd be we'll happy, again. happy to do this again. <laughs> You're definitely very yeah. honoured to. Well, I don't want to foreshadow anything, but, you know, but OK. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, until next week and uh, oh it's called oxygen isn't it yes yeah yes, it's called that's... oxygen yeah it looks to be uh quite the scary one as well yeah a bit of a sort of slightly frontier in space sort of 42 yeah. sort of one of those ones where you've got a significant amount set in a spaceship and it's yeah. a case of right if you've given the writer the idea that it's going to be set in a spaceship can that mm. writer find something that's either innovative or at least uh, you know well worked through enough to make it worth doing mm. i do love horror in space I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to it well yeah alien one of mm. the absolute classics yeah, yeah true yeah right until then then uh i was jr i was colin and i am Stephen. <laughs> and we'll speak again soon thank you love to <laughs> 